All right, familia. How's everyone doing? Before the preaching of a scripture, I got two quick announcements um, or commercials, if you will. Uh, number one, as you were coming in, you probably noticed in the atrium a bunch of different tables, and it's because this is the season of the year in which we are recruiting ministry partners. We don't like the word volunteer because that just sounds awful. Ministry partners is more like a description of how we see we should see each other, and everyone in this room has gifts. Amen. How many of you guys got gifts? Please raise your hand. Your gifts are not yours. First Corinthians chapter twelve says that your gifts are for the common good, for the common good of the church. First Corinthians chapter twelve says that all, even the weaker gifts, are indispensable, meaning that those gifts are really important for the body of the church. And that we need one another's gifts. So if you are not serving in anything just yet, there are plenty of ministries out there. Children, youth, adult ministries, life groups, Bible studies, tech department, Puente del Pueblo. We got all kinds of stuff. One of those should be good for you. Amen? So at the end of the service, please stop by one of the tables, uh, ask information, and put your gifts to use for the glory of God. Second thing, this is also the season in which we start taking names for possible elders for the next season of the ministry year. We believe as a church that the Lord calls certain qualified men to the role of elders in the church. So if you are an official member of the church, you can nominate different people. Um, you could go to wittenbible.org slash elder nomination, or you could get a hard copy from the welcome desk. Amen? All right. Let's talk Bible. Good morning, familia. Welcome all to Witten Bible Church. Those of you that are here, you guys are looking pretty good. Those of you guys that are worshiping with us online, I hope to see you soon. Uh, today, we continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we are going to be looking at the second part of Matthew chapter 9, in which Jesus is performing or executing different, four different miracles, which is super interesting. And as we, as we dig into the section of the scripture, I want to invite you to consider or reflect uh, and the fact that these four miracles, if, we, if you really pay attention to them, have one purpose, actually many purposes, but one of the main purposes is for us to see that Jesus is trustworthy, is for us to see that Jesus is re reliable, is for us to see that Jesus is worthy enough of our trust, our submission, and our obedience. In other words, that Jesus is worthy of our lives. Blaise Pascal, uh, Pascal once said that our job is to make religion attractive, to make good men and women wish it were true, and then it show that it is. That's exactly what I'm going to try to do today. I'm going to try to convince you if you are exploring Christianity or if you're not a Christian, or I'm going to try to convince you once again if you are a Christian that Jesus is attractive. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit makes you feel that that is true, and then I'm going to show you from a scripture, hopefully, that that is true. So the question I'm trying to answer all through this sermon is, is Jesus trustworthy? And the answer to me from the scripture is yes, for four reasons. Because his timing is impeccable, his love is personal, his power is irresistible, and his plans are unstoppable. 30 minutes for each one of those, we should be okay. Point number one, 
His timing is impeccable or perfect. In this section of the Gospel of Matthew, right at the beginning of the section we read, Jesus is having an interaction with this individual that is respected and admired in society. In verse 18, it says that a synagogue leader came to kneel before him, Jesus, and said, my daughter has just died, but come, put your hand on her, and she will live. It is significant that a, a leader from the synagogue, the Gospel of Mark tells us that his name is Jairus, it is significant that this leader goes looking for Jesus because he represents a group of people that believe that Jesus might have powers, that he might have miracles, but they did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. Nobody at that rank, with that position, with that tradition, would ever believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And yet, this man is so desperate that he looks for Jesus so Jesus, for Jesus, uh, so Jesus could perform a miracle to raise his daughter from dead. Now, it's important to recognize that this man respected Jesus. That's part of the reason why the text says that he knelt before him. But once again, respect doesn't mean fully believe. But somehow he's got enough faith that he believes that Jesus could raise his daughter from dead. So and so desperate is this man that he makes this public confession, risking his reputation. Now the question is why? Why is it that this man is so desperate? Well, I think that the text makes it clear that the pain that a person feels when they lose a child is so profound that you would do anything to bring them to life. I want to make the argument that most likely the pain of losing a child cannot be compared to any other pain and probably cannot be described with words. Here in our congregation, we have people that have gone through that. And one thing that I've learned is that that pain is unnatural. It actually goes contrary to nature because everything in nature tells you that parents bury their kids. No! That kids bury their parents, not the other way around. There's something about this pain, this struggle that is abnormal even for nature. See, I find it interesting that if a wife loses a husband, it's called a widow. If a husband loses a wife, he's called a widower. If a child loses his parents, he's called an orphan. But there is no word to describe the pain that a father or a mother feels when they lose a child. It's because that pain is profound. Cannot be described with simple words. And that explains why this man, risking his reputation, goes to look for Jesus and begs for a miracle. Now, Jesus, that is a man full of mercy and grace, um, 
submits to this man's request, and as they're going home to rescue, to resuscitate this girl, look at what happened in verse 20. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his clock. And she thinks, if I only touch his clock, I will be healed. Now, the Gospel of Matthew doesn't tell us how Jesus reacted, but the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus, when she touched him, he felt that power came out of him, which I find is super interesting. Now, the question is this. If you were Jesus, what would you do? If you are in a mission, if you have an agenda, if you have to go and resuscitate a girl that passed away, what would you do if this was your case? And Jesus, that never fits the way we think he should do, uh, he should be, or the things that he should do, he does something weird and yet beautiful. In verse 22, he says that Jesus turned and saw her and said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you, and that woman was healed at that moment. Now listen, that's weird. Because he didn't need to do that. Actually, there's something strange about this situation here because if you are the leader of the synagogue, let's try to put ourselves in the position of this leader and you will have to ask the question, why would Jesus stop to have this conversation with this lady if my daughter just died? Let me tell you, if I'm Jairus, let me tell you how I will process this. It's only my opinion because it's not in the Bible. So I just want to help you process this a little bit. If I'm this man, this is what I would think. Come on, Jesus. If I, if I were to choose which one is more important right now, resurrecting my daughter or healing this woman that has been sick for 12 years, I'll go for my daughter. Actually, if I'm this man, I would say, even with good intentions, you know, this woman has been sick for 12 years. Two hours is not going to make a difference, you know? <laughs> but my daughter just died. You know what I think the disciples are thinking? Once again, this is only my opinion because it's not in the text. But I think the disciples are probably thinking, Jesus, Jesus what are you thinking? Didn't you hear that a leader from the synagogue needs your help? Don't stop to help this woman that nobody knows about. You could come back later, Jesus, and perform the miracle. But right now, this woman is the one that counts. You don't do that to a leader. But this is what Jesus shows us. That his time is different than our time. And that Jesus cannot be rushed, that he cannot be slowed down, that his timing is always perfect. Listen up. He heals this woman. He goes to the house, and in verse 24, he kicks people out and says, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. And of course, people laughed at him. And in verse 25, he says, they took the girl by the hand, and she got up. If you're a believer, this you must remember. Jesus is always on time. 
Jesus is never late. Jesus is never late and never early. Jesus is always on time. He knows what to do and when to do it. In his wisdom, he knows that what people need and when they need it. He cannot be hurried. He can, he's not bound to our sense of urgency. He does not function according to our time. He knows exactly what we need, when we need it, because his time is impeccable. Therefore, we can trust him even if it seems late. Do you have any idea how much you need that? If you're a believer, you really need that. Because that helps you wait and rest even when you cannot understand what he's doing. See, if Jesus' time is impeccable then we could pray different. See, I pray for the Lord to do something, and I pray for the Lord to change circumstances, but because I know that his time is impeccable, I can wait and rest until he's ready to do whatever he, he wants to do. You know what our problem, let me say, you know what my problem is? Sometimes I struggle with God's timing because I cannot think of a possible good reason why is it that God is late. But because God is, his time is impeccable. Even if I cannot understand, even if there's no good reason in my head why God is late, his time is always a good time. You don't know what he was doing in Jairus. You don't know what he was doing in that lady. You don't know what he was doing with his disciples. You don't know what he was doing with that crowd. His time is always perfect. Is Jesus trustworthy? Of course he is. He's never late. He's never early. He's just on time. Reason number two. Jesus is trustworthy because his love is personal. This might be, this might, may be my favorite part of the whole text. Because there are four miracles in the section we read. And three of them have something in common. And it has to do with the word Touch. Look at the first one here in verse 20. When he encounters this lady that is bleeding for 12 years, that comes from behind him, and she touched them. Once again, because she feels and understands that if she touched him, she will be healed. Now, this may not seem like a big deal uh, for, you know, us in the present times, but for first century people, and people that understood the Old Testament, they knew Everyone knew that if you were bleeding, even for a week, you were automatically, ceremonially unclean. You know what that means? That because you were bleeding, you could not touch anybody because that person would become unclean, number one. And number two, you couldn't even go to church because everybody in your surroundings will be unclean. And no unclean person should be in the presence of God. 12 years. 12 years, this broken woman. About 4,300 days. A woman living in isolation. About, about 4,300 years, days. This woman not being able to worship with people. 
about 4,300 days, completely separated from society. You know how inhumane that is? We have been created to be relational people. We are created in the image of God that is a relational God, a triune God that has a rela perfect relationship within the Trinity. We are created to have relationship with other people. Isolation is cruel. 4,300 days. This lady completely separated socially and religiously. You know how desperate she was? We, we don't know if she was married. But we know that if she was married, the husband didn't touch her. We don't know if she had kids. But if she had kids, the kids could not touch her. We don't know if she had friends. But most likely, she had no friends because nobody could touch her. But see, Jesus wants to give people more than a miracle. He wants to give what nobody else gives. And look at what he does in verse 22. Jesus turned and saw her and said to her, take her daughter, your faith has healed you. That turning around is amazing to me. Listen, I'm sure that Jesus knows the Old Testament much better than this lady. He knows that he touched her, that, that she touched him. He knows that he became unclean, according to the Old Testament. Question, do you know why he turned around to talk to her? I'll tell you later. Because Jesus would do the same thing. In other, with the other miracle, with the 12-year-old girl. So look at what happens. He's going to this house. He sees the girl. And in verse 25, he says, after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. He does the same thing with another person that is also unclean. Because anybody that knew a little bit of the Old Testament, everyone knew that you would never touch a dead person. The moment you would touch a dead person, you become unclean, just like with the first case. So the question is this, why would Jesus touch this little girl if he didn't need to? I mean, by now we all know, if you were reading uh, Matthew chapter 8 with us, by now we know that Jesus doesn't need to touch anybody to perform a miracle. He's God. Oh, the only thing he needs to say is speak. You remember the storm? Shh, come down. And he comes down. Why did Jesus touch this girl? You want to know why? I'll tell you later. <laughs> because he would, do this, he would do the same thing with the two blind men. The two blind men look for Jesus. They're crying out for mercy. They call him son of David. He, they're expecting a miracle. And in verse 29, look at what Jesus does. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Did Jesus need to touch them? Of course not. 
Why did he touch them? Now I could tell you. He touched him for the same reason that he touched, that he allowed that lady to touch him. He touched him for the same reason that he touched that dead girl. Actually, let me give you three reasons why he did that. Number one, Jesus was not in the business of just performing miracles left and right. Jesus wanted a personal touch, a personal relationship, because our God is a personal God. Your God wants, your God wants more than just give you a miracle. He wants a personal relationship with you. Number two, part of the reason why Jesus is touching these people is because our God is not ashamed of touching the people he loves. He does not care if uncleanness gets transferred to him. He does something that people in that time and in that context and in our time and in our context, people do. If you were unclean, people would run away from you. But Jesus does the opposite. Jesus runs toward you. You know what, that's important because it doesn't matter how unclean you think you are, how filthy you think you are, how big your sins you are, Jesus never runs away from you. He runs toward you. And number three, Jesus touched them because he is a God that believes that you are transformed by proximity, by touch. Not just by words. Listen, we are all changed by proximity and by touch, not just by words. This is part of the reason why God the Father sent the Son and the Son sent the Spirit. This is part of the reason why Jesus God becomes a Uh, a human being in Jesus Christ. This is part of the reason why the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to live in us. It's eternity in our hearts. It's the presence of God within us. Touch. Proximity. We are changed by proximity, not just by words. Isn't that true? How many of you guys are married? I think that by now you have learned that sometimes saying that you love your spouse is not enough. Actually, I know people that think that you don't even need to say that you love your spouse. I don't know where you got that life from. But there are people that think, it's just if I tell you that I love you, it's enough. You know that at times, a hug, a touch, says much more than what your words say. You know, as a father, I've learned that sometimes if I want to make my daughters feel secure... I have to say, I have to do much more than simply say, you are secure. Sometimes a hug, holding them tight, provides more security than simply words. You know what I learned as a pastor? When I go to funerals, you know what's more important there? Not the things I say, but to be there. And to weep with those that weep. And to hold tight. And to let weep. Because touch 
sometimes is more important than words. I'm sure that many of you guys know the story of John Merrick, which is known as the, was known as the Elephant Man, which was a man that was born in 1862 with an extremely rare condition. He, had a, he, he was terribly deformed. His head was twice the size of a regular head. He had an outgrown arm that was useless. One of his legs, uh, his legs couldn't support the body, uh, the weight of his body. Um, he was so deformed that you couldn't understand what he was saying. At the age of four, he was sold, and a carno- uh, his mother left him, and a carnival claimed him for a human freak show. You know, he survived, making people look at him and making fun of him. That's how he survived. Can you imagine what it means to live like that? Can you imagine what it means to be so deformed that nobody wants to touch you? One day, a famous actress looked uh, past Merrick's skin and embraced him, and he, she hugged him. And that act moved him to tears because it was the first time that someone had touched him in love. You know, that is the woman that has been bleeding for 12 years. That is the girl that just passed away. And these are the blind men. Jesus knows that sometimes a simple touch speaks louder than just words. Jesus didn't have to do that, and yet he knows what the heart needs. Is Jesus trustworthy? Of course he is. His time is impeccable. His love is personal. He does not know how to love from afar. He gets into your pain, and he whips with you. Reason number three, Jesus is trustworthy because his power is irresistible. By now, I think that you all know that when we say that Jesus is powerful, it's because the Bible shows us that he is powerful. Jesus displays power over sickness, for example, with the bleeding woman in verse 22. He speaks to her, and she was healed at that moment. Not gradually healed, but healed automatically. Jesus has power over sickness. We see the same thing with the daughter of Jairus. Oh, I'm sorry, with with the two blind men. He touched them, he speaks, and they recovered their sight. Their sight was completely restored. You see that in verse 29. We also know that Jesus displays power over demons. We haven't spent much time on that one, but right at the end of the section we were reading, in verse 32, someone brings to Jesus this demon-possessed man that says that he could not talk, and what they needed was from Jesus to perform a miracle. And what does Jesus do? He drove the demon out, and the mute man spoke. I love the way Matthew describes this kind of stuff, because there's no big show, there's no exorcism, there's no people flipping their heads. He just talks, get out, and they get out. (laughs) And as great as that is, I want to make the argument that that is not the number one evidence, because what that says that Jesus is powerful. I want to make the argument that he most, his most supreme, his ultimate, his utmost, his greatest evidence of power is that he speaks to a dead person and the person resurrects. 
but I want to show you how he did it. Because we all have sometimes, if you have been influenced by culture and Hollywood and other people, you probably imagine Jesus racing, doing all kinds of stuff to this little girl, and the girl just, that's not what happened. I want to show you the kind of power Jesus has. And for that, we're going to look at the text that that describes the situation in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. Pay attention here. Look what it says. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Now, the word Talitha is a, it's an amazing, beautiful word. The, the NIV translates this as little girl, but I think that the translation is more, the, the meaning of that word is more than that. This is the kind of expression that if you're a parent, you would use to show affection to your kid. It's an expression of profound affection. It's when a father or mother says to the, to the little girl, honey, baby. So, for example, for me, when I want to show affection to my daughters, I don't say baby or honey or any of that. I always call them baby girls. That is the ultimate expression for me. Now, I'm the only one that gets to use that phrase just in case there's some ideas around. But Jesus speaks to this little girl like a father would and says, baby girl. The second word, which is the word kum, which is translated in the text as get up, I think that a better translation would be wake up. Notice how Jesus raised this girl from the dead. Baby girl, wake up. And she submits to him. I tried that with my girls, wake him up. That does not work. (laughs) Baby girl, wake up. Baby girl, wake up. Baby girl, wake up. Nothing happens. (laughs) Jesus, on the other hand, speaks to a dead person. And she submits. That's why I think that is is the most significant evidence of his power. Not only Jesus has the power to heal a person, to liberate liberate a demon possession, uh, a person that is under the oppression of the devil, but his power is such that he only needs to say something and a person resurrects. Church, why is that important to you? Because if that is the God we worship, if this is our Jesus, our Lord and Savior, if he's got that kind of power, there's no one or nothing more secure than to be in him and to live for him. There's nothing more important, more more beautiful and secure that to have God on our side, you know how foolish it is for us to think that we are secure because we have a career, because we have money, because we are healthy, because you have a car, because you have a house. You know how foolish that is. You know how foolish it is to think that you're secure because your bank account has money in it. 
Nothing wrong with the money. If you don't want it, please send it this way. But the most secure thing, the ultimate security is to know that the God that could do this is the God that is with you and that is the God that is for you. Even if everything is going wrong. Is Jesus trustworthy? Of course he is. His time is impeccable. His love is personal. His power is irresistible. Because even death submits to him. Reason number four. Jesus is trustworthy because his plans are unstoppable. See, as I look through this text, I know that there are various reasons why all of this is put together. So, for example, I know that part of the reason why these events are put together is so we could see that Jesus really, 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 really cares for people. That's why he does the things he does. But there's another primary reason why all these things are put in the text together is because every single one of those things were signs that Jesus was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Actually, one of the examples that we find in the Bible in Isaiah chapter 42, this is how the Messiah is described. Jesus will come or the Messiah will come to open the eyes of the blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who, are, who sit in darkness. So part of the reason why Jesus is performing all these miracles is not just because he loves people, but it is because he loves people and at the same time, he's proving to everyone that he was the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. But there's a third reason, which is a reason that is going to help you, especially when you go through rough times. And the third reason is that those miracles... We're giving us a foretaste of what not only Jesus came to do, but what Jesus will eventually do in this entire creation. This is Revelation chapter 21, verses 4 and 5. It says that Jesus one day will return, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and, he, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And then Jesus says from his throne, I am making everything new. You know what's beautiful? Because sometimes in the midst of struggle and in the midst of pain, we think that God's plans are going south. Sometimes in the midst of our bleeding. Sometimes when someone passes away. Sometimes when you get sick and you cannot see. Sometimes it's easier to think that God is not accomplishing his plans. And this text tells us that part of the reason why Jesus was performing these miracles is to give us a foretaste of what he eventually will do forever. One day there will be a place and a time in which there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more rejection, no more shame, no more crying, no more death. That's hope. The best is yet to come. Suffering and pain has a deadline. Our Jesus King came to make all things new 
and is making all things new. Is Jesus trustworthy? Of course he is. His time is impeccable. Jesus, is Jesus trustworthy? Of course he is. He cares. He loves. He knows how to be. He knows how to touch. He is personal. But above all, his plans are unstoppable. Now, there's one thing about these three people that I, these three events that, uh, that I find so, uh, so interesting. Every single one of them had an imperfect faith, and yet Jesus performed the miracles. Just in case, I said this a couple of weeks ago, I don't believe that the Bible calls you to have this, um, uh, that, that faith in Jesus doesn't mean that you have to have this quality of faith or quantity of faith in order for Jesus to do something. What he requires of us is that we have simple, broken faith. Because at the end of the day, it's not something about what we do, but who he is. He is the object of our faith. I want to show you how broken these people were. So you have hope. So for example, this leader in the synagogue, he believed in Jesus. He believed that Jesus could perform a miracle. But he did not believe, at least at the beginning, he did not believe that he was the Messiah. And yet... Jesus performed the miracle. Do you notice that? When you look at a woman that is suffering from bleeding, her faith was also imperfect. See, she knew that Jesus had the power to heal her, but she did not believe enough in Jesus to know, to, to talk to Jesus. And yet Jesus performed the miracle. See, the blind men, they believed in Jesus, but their faith was imperfect as well. Because even though they believed that Jesus could heal them, they did not believe enough to obey him. You know how I know that? Because after he performed the miracle, he says to them, don't tell anybody what I just did. And they went all over the place to tell everyone what he did. That was an imperfect faith. Now, why do I tell you that? Because the only way we embrace Jesus... It's because of Jesus is. You don't need this quality or quantity of faith. All you need is to believe. Even in the midst of your brokenness, even with your imperfection. We have, listen up church, more reasons and why to believe in him than all these people. Because we know something they did not know. They did not know that the same God whose time is impeccable, whose love is personal, whose power is irresistible, and whose plans are unstoppable will be the same God that later on will go to the cross at the right time to, to, to die as an unclean for the, um, so the unclean will become clean in him. See, they didn't know that, but we know that. Can we trust Jesus? Of course we can. See, they did not know, but we know that the same God, whose love is personal, later on at the cross would experience cosmic loneliness, cosmic isolation, cosmic rejection. That's why Jesus says, Father, why have you forsaken me? So why did he do that? So you and I, if we have placed our faith in him, we will never feel alone. We will never be alone. We will never experience the isolation from our Father. See, they didn't know that, but we do. They did not know, but we know that the same God whose power is irresistible surrendered that power at the cross to die for my sin and your sin so we could be healed 
and restored. Do you know what the word healed is in the original? Saved. So you and I could find salvation. So you and I could be restored. See, they didn't know that, but we do. See, they didn't know that the same God whose plans are unstoppable died and resurrected to begin the revolution, to start something that will be unstoppable, to start the reality that he is making all things new and he will stop at nothing. And you are part of his plan if you surrender to him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I'm being reminded of one of the songs that we sang at the beginning. Lord, that you walk into our dirt. You love us so and so much that you cannot love from afar. And you walk into our dirt. Lord, some of us are like the bleeding woman for 12 years. Feeling unclean and being treated as unclean. Some of us struggle with the pain of losing a loved one and thinking that there is no hope. Some of us are carrying our sickness and we cannot see. Some of us are living under the oppression of the evil one. And it seems like if there's no hope. But Father, help us see that that is part of the reason why Jesus came. To give us the dignity that we so much wanted. To find freedom from our sickness. To find freedom from our cleanness. To give us life. To allow us to see. I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here who have never placed their faith in you, that they may be able to do it today and experience the joy of salvation and the joy of restoration. But for those of us that are already Christian, I pray, Lord, that you do not allow that we lose the wonder of realizing that you are completely trustworthy, that your time is perfect. That you are personal. That your plans are unstoppable. That you are everything we need. Lord, allow us to see the greatest miracle ever in the history of the world. Which is the miracle of the cross. In which God, our Savior surrenders all to bring us home. And we pray for all of that in the name of Jesus. And we all say...